don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before. I'm sure you have, but you ever heard this phrase, they don't build them like they used to? You heard that phrase? All right, think of one example of something that they don't build like they used to. Tell somebody around you. It would probably disprove my point um, if I tried to get on it. But um, so what are some of the things you guys said? They don't build them like they used to. Cars. My truck, it does this thing where it just restarts every time I stop. I'm not loving that, you know. The trucks of the old days didn't do that. I have to press a little button so that it doesn't do that. Uh, what else? They don't build them like they used to. I just heard all of it at once. It's louder. Tools, okay, tools, what else? Appliances, yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but my, my um, grandma, she has this literally washing machine that like all it has is a little knob, you turn it, you pull it out, and it pours the water in. She's had that her entire lifetime, you know? Now, how many of you have these high-tech digital ones that like, they're showing air codes? Like, what, what are you getting wrong? Like, what, just put the water in us, and I agree with you on the appliances, obviously, um, <laughs> What else? Telephones. Yeah, I know, right? Why, why can't we just go back to a little turn and, and I don't have to take it with me? Like, you can't get a hold of me, you can't get a hold of me, you know? Or they used to have the ones where you, like, talk on the line and there's only one in the neighborhood. You know, you heard of that? Like, you know, you'd be on the line and you'd be like, hey, get all, you know, stop, stop tying up the line. You know, I need to make a call. Uh, but the phone thing is true, too, even with cell phones because... Um, now I get it, they're, they're more technologically advanced and all of that, but I, don't, I could tell you that first like cell phone that I had, everything was like a brick, like I could drop that thing or drop something on it and it would be fine, you know, now it's like you drop your cell phone once and it's totally shattered and like ruined, you know, so they're just a little bit more delicate these days, um, and obviously I brought up here my big wheel, this was my uh, big wheel that I had as a kid at my grandma's house. My grandmother uh, kept this at her house, and I can just tell you this thing has been around the block a time or two, and I've ridden it and ridden it and ridden it, and it is now, I mean, it's, it's, it's 30-something years old now, and my grandma passed it along, gave it to my kids, and I was just thinking, great, like, this is going to be, it's, it's not going to last through their generation. Like, they're going to figure out a way to break this thing, but I don't know if it's made of Kevlar or what, but like, it still isn't broken, even with my kids. Now, how many of you know the toys they make today, because you've bought them, you bring them home, and literally, like, it's like, you know, breaks like in an instant. I'm like, what, what is this made out of? Like, it's like the cheapest plastic ever, but I'm just telling you right now, you can, you can come look later, but that thing is solid. It's not, it's not getting broke. So, in some, some things, you can really look at and say they don't make them like they used to. And what we've been doing over the course of this series in the upper room, as we've been really kind of in an essence saying this about the church. Uh, we've been looking at the New Testament church, and we've sort of reverse engineered the New Testament church to say, okay, how was the church built like in the New Testament? Like what, what were the components of the church? What was, the, uh, what was really made up in the construction of the early church? Because I think what's happened in some regard is that throughout history, it's been easy for us as mere humans to craft God's church in our own image. 
to kind of craft and build the church that we like, to kind of take the hammer, take the tools, um, and try to construct the church in the way that really kind of meets our needs rather than to fulfill God's purposes. And so as we've kind of stepped back in this series, last week Stephen really uh, helped to kind of capture this idea of what does it look like to be an upper room kind of a church, a church that really, again, focuses on fulfilling God's purpose in the world. And so my job today is really to answer the who question of the church, which is, all right, who, who is it? Like, who, who is the church? And it, the church really is a who, and it's you and me. And so what I'm going to do today is really kind of throughout um, the day, unpack 2 Peter, or sorry, 1 Peter a little bit, and we're going to look at some of these core components of the church. Now, obviously, context is important, right? Uh, We aren't living in a New Testament context. It's not exactly the same back then as it was today. Uh, And though God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the world is changing rapidly, and so we we adjust our approach, and our approach must, must shift. But it, and it can also be said that there can be more than one healthy expression of church. It's not to say that there's one right model of church or one right way to do church. Having said that, though, there are some unhealthy expressions of church. And so what we want to do is really get into the essence and the core of what is the church that God's constructing today. As it says in Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we really want to be part of the house, the church that God is building, not just now, but into the future. And so that's what this series, um, Upper Room, has been about. And so we're going to tackle a little bit more today and really just ask God to uh, demonstrate to us who he has called us to be as the church, as the people. It's not just the building, right? It's not just the building, it's, it's the people. And so we're going to be talking about what does it look like to be his people, what kind of distinguishing characteristics uh, are true of God's people. And so uh, if you would turn with me, we're going to look at 1 Peter 2 today, um, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that causes them to fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's talk about some of the things that we see here in this passage in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. The first thing is this, that the, one of the distinguishing characteristics of the New Testament church, of the people of God, is that they were being driven by and really motivated by this new reality. There was this reality, and that reality was the gospel, now that you have tasted that 
the Lord is good. And so it was this that motivated them. And he's saying, look, I want you to, to look different, to live different in light of and grow up in your salvation in light of the fact that you have tasted that the Lord is good, in light of this reality that the Lord is good, that there is good news. And I think as we kind of approach series like this or messages like this, you know, a lot of us that have like a sense of duty, you know, which is a good thing, by the way, right? That we're like, okay, I have a sense of duty. And so we see these things, and sometimes we read these things if we look primarily through that lens is, I just have a job to do. And then we look at it like a, an opportunity to kind of say, okay, how's my performance at that job of kind of, you know, operating as a church and doing that? But what I want to, to, to say to us today is that it's more than just duty, but it's delight. I mean, here what we see is, yes, there is a duty that comes, but it comes from delight, that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and it's because of that that we fulfill the duty to serve him and be his people and live as his church. And I actually added this point later because I realized that this component actually precedes the rest of these ideas we're going to talk about today, and it's a really important starting place, that this reality of the gospel is what really makes the rest of this possible. The New Testament church, again, was not an institution. It was a people who tasted the Lord as good, a people being transformed by the life-altering reality of the gospel. And I think for me, sometimes I can feel like I'm being graded, like God's up there, like, giving me a performance report, like, okay, how are you doing on this, that, and the other, right? And obviously, God's mission is important to him, and he wants me to be involved, but God also delights in the relationship. He delights in um, being and giving, offering good things to each and every one of us. I was studying recently as I was kind of, because again, I think I'm one of these people that like, you know, I'm, I'm performance driven and I'm like, how am I doing? How am I being graded? All these things. And I think that, you know, in doing that, there can be um, definitely some downsides and you can want to do things reluctantly or out of obligation sometimes and so on and so forth. Um, but one of the things that struck me recently was just this idea, and we were doing a, a Bible study with my kids. We do this little, like, app at night where we read through it and, and study it, and this one was all about Jesus' baptism, and, and th- it was interesting because, you know, I've heard that story before, but something struck me a little bit differently as I read it. As we looked through it, one of the things that we talked about was this idea that when Jesus was baptized, and you remember this moment, there's this, this significant moment where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and he was raised up um, uh, out of the water. There's this profound moment where uh, God speaks, the Father speaks from heaven. He says, this is my son with whom I love. I'm well pleased. And it's a really, I've, I've, I've always like thought, well, yeah, that's Jesus. Like, that's a cool moment. Like, uh, you know, he's well pleased. But what's interesting, and I hadn't noticed before, was that Jesus hadn't even started his ministry at this point. It wasn't like he'd fulfilled his mission, he'd done everything that he had come to do, or he'd, or he'd even started healing anybody or doing any of, of the work that he had been called to do at this point. This is really kind of the inauguration of his mission, of his work. And it was in this moment that God said, this is my son with whom I love, I am well pleased. And I love that. I think it's a powerful thing for us all to really think about is that 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 God loves us not because of how we perform for him, what we do or don't do for him. We do those things because we love him and because we have a relationship with him. But those things don't, uh, don't have anything to do with our relationship with him aside from evidence, being evidence of our relationship with him. And so I think we need to be remember, and this allows us to really operate from a place of just delight in God and delight in his goodness, his faithfulness, and then step into 
uh, the next thing that I see here, which is we, we live out of the reality of the gospel and we step into the relationship that we have with God. And as it says here, as we read on in the text, it says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you yourselves are being built up um, into a spiritual house. And so this is a really interesting concept when you think about it. And um, one of the things to keep in mind here is that um, the apostle Peter is speaking to a primarily Jewish audience. And so this idea that they're being built into a house would have definitely triggered to them this concept of and thought of the temple and this place where you were really meant to commune with God and really there was limited access to him. It was just the priest that could go and step into this temple space and really have this communion. They were really like the representatives to, um, to God for the people. So he's giving them just this really interesting concept here to say, no, listen, you are going to actually be built up into, as living stones, into the spiritual house yourself. Well, how can that be? Well, as we see here um, in John, it tells us that the story of God is this pursuit of of humanity, which culminated in the person of Jesus. And in John uh, 1, 10 through 13, it says, he came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. This is God's doing. This is God's work for those that accept his message. So we've been given this right to be his children. And as his children, and because of the Christ's atoning work on the cross, Peter adds to our theological understanding of what it means to be the church, and that is the dwelling place of God, that we as his people are the dwelling place. I had this friend that he would always come like on Sunday mornings, and he would just kind of like, just in like kind of a joking way, he would just be like, uh, I'd say, hey man, how you doing this morning? He'd be like, man, it's just good to be in the house of the Lord today, like that. He'd like say it like, you know, that was always like his line, his like thing when he came in, like, and, uh, and I was like, I, I appreciate his enthusiasm, and I didn't want to correct his theology, but, I, but, but the truth is that technically we are the house of, of the Lord. You know, we are the house of the Lord. And um, it's an interesting thing to really uh, conceptualize that the Lord is always with us, that we are living stones, that we possess the living God living in us by his spirit, and we are being built up into the spiritual house. Looking again back at the Old Covenant, we see that the temple was, again, designed to be that place where God would meet with humanity. And Paul explains that this house of God's own possession is actually the dwelling place of God. Believers are being built into a dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. And so all of us together, we uh, collectively are the dwelling place of God. There's a scholar named Tom Wright that writes that this this idea, and he kind of... um, conceptualizes it this way, that the temple was really this place that held together the divine realm, heaven, and the human realm, earth. And so this temple idea, this is the intersection of heaven and earth, the the intersection of, of God and mankind. And so this life that's embodied by Christ is where the divine realm now meets the human realm. Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 captures it this way, for, for through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. We are the dwelling place of God. Mark Sayers says it this way, reading these scriptures, we begin to grasp that humans are only truly human in the presence of God, finding meaning and purpose only when they align their desires, hopes, and lives with his plan. The human life is only a functioning life system when we live as temples filled with his presence. So we live from the reality of the gospel, which grants us relationship with God, that we become his dwelling place, and from that place then, we take on our divinely established role. Well, what's the role? To be a holy priesthood. The role is to be his priest. So you guys are all priests, believe it or not. You guys are officially priests. Now, what does that mean? Now, in our context, we think about the Catholic context, and some of you are thinking, like, okay, do I get my little collar? I start inviting my friends over to the house, and we do some confessions. Like, what, what do you mean, like, I'm a priest? Like, what exactly does this mean? But again, remember, Peter is talking to those that would have understand the Old Testament context of the word, that they were, again, this mediator between God and mankind, that they went into the temple, that they had access to God in a very direct way, that they could intercede uh, in prayer on behalf of the people. And now what's being said here um, is, and what, what Peter is really making clear, is that there's the priesthood, all of us as believers are the priesthood. This is one of the things that uh, the, the reformer Martin Luther really took issue with was the spiritual hierarchy that had been created in the church. And so he, he, he basically said in, in, in a single line that faith is the priestly office. In other words, if you believe in Christ, if you trust in Christ, then you are in fact a priest. That There's no hierarchy or no special class of people that should have you know, extra access to the scriptures or the truth or the ability to meet and commune with God. And so um, we are all priests in that regard. So what all exactly does that mean? Well, what Peter's really calling us to, I think, is a higher level of ownership, really, in our role in the church. And I think if we think about what it's going to look like to be the future church, I think it's going to be a church where the everyday people of God take on a more significant role. If we're going to be effective in the, the, the years to come as the future church, we're all going to need to be more and more engaged um, in playing the role of priesthood and playing the role of, um, again, carrying out God's redemptive plan together. So how does that look? Well, um, it's, it's ownership. I don't know how many of you guys remember uh, the time when you were like new, new homeowners, for those of you that own a house, like first-time homeowners. And I remember when Jess and I first bought our, our first house, we were in an apartment for a while, and then we, um, we bought this house over here um, and, and actually, prior to that, we were with our parents for a little bit. We were in, like, one basement, another basement, because, like, we had kind of, like, for a short period of time trying to figure out, um, you know, where we were going to be, because everything changed really quickly when we uh, joined up here at Axis. And so we were, we were staying with my parents for a little while, and then we were into the house, and we found this cool little house in Mainville. And um, so I remember how exciting that was. It was awesome to, like, man, this is finally, like, our place. And uh, it's really, really exciting until something breaks. And I'm, like, looking around. I'm, like, what? you know, we got to fix that. Like, you know? And in my old residence, like, that was dad's job. Like, you know, like, where's dad at? Like, so this needs to get fixed. Like, you know, 
oh, wait, you know, wait a minute. And I remember one a moment in particular, I actually still called my dad early on, you know, to help me out so I didn't mess it up. But like one, there was a, a moment where a whole bunch of spaghetti got poured down into the sink. I'm not blaming anybody, but a whole bunch of spaghetti got poured down into the sink. So we had this massive clog, you know, and I'm, I don't know what I'm doing at all. You know, like I don't even know how to take the little, you know, pee trap off at this point because I got nothing about it. Jess and I couldn't even hang curtains early on, you know. And uh, this is how bad we were. Um, but I remember just thinking, like, oh, man, like, this is going to be tough. Like, because now I have a role to play. And guess who's the maintenance guy? I'm the maintenance guy. You know, guess who's fixing things? I'm the one that's fixing things. And, and it was, it was uh, my dad did come over and help that first time, though. We cut this pipe in half. And all this spaghetti just, like, is pouring out of the, you know. And he's just kind of like, don't put spaghetti on the sink. Like, just let's just not do that anymore. Lesson learned, you know, and now it's like my kids understand that I'm the maintenance guy, you know, and they don't have the, the role to play. But um, when you take on ownership of something, right, you play a role. You, ha- you have a new role to play. And I think this is really the call as we step into the future is that we all see the church as something that we have ownership in. That we have a role to play in as opposed to, hey, there's just a, you know, a, 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 some paid people that do this or some professionals that do this or whatever it might be. That we all play the role uh, that we were called to play. Paul lays out some specific giftings in the New Testament church when he talks about, uh, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each heart is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so love is really kind of this all-encompassing part that, that holds it all together, but notice all the roles that he says there that are, that are meant to be, uh, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He talks about the apostles. Now, well, what's an apostle? Uh, well, an apostle is really the, this person that has this leadership kind of gift. They have the ability to lead others. They maybe have this entrepreneurial kind of bent. It's the person that can see a hill and be like, hey, let's take that hill. And, and you've kind of got that spirit in you. The prophet is this person that has this uncanny way of just making sense of the times, of things that are going on, and really bringing the truth of God into those things. The evangelist is the person that has this, this heart for the lost. And uh, the evangelist is the one that has this ability just to connect with people of all kinds and have those spiritual conversations. And, and it comes in some ways naturally uh, to them, and they just have this passion for sharing uh, things, and specifically the gospel. Um, they have a way of just having these compassionate conversations with people whose views are different than theirs. And then there's the shepherd and the pastor. This is the shepherd in, in this um, particular text, but another text is referred to as a pastor. This is the person that sees needs in a way that many other people don't notice, that they they have God's eyes for those that are hurting or or left out. They're always looking for that sheep that needs a little extra touch. They aren't afraid to get their hands dirty serving others. And then there's the teacher. This is the person who has the ability to communicate truth in a way that connects with people and transforms them. They like to explain things they have learned that it might benefit others. 
And so there are these different roles that kind of kind of fall under this idea of the role we all have, which is priesthood. And so um, potentially, and, and there, by the way, there's um, things you can go online to actually do the gift assessment and see, like, okay, which of these bents do I kind of, and you might have more than one. And by the way, we all have, in some degree, um, you know, responsibility for, for all of these different things. Um, but, you know, God has given us very, various strengths and giftings that, that we can live out. And, um, and I think that as we continue to step into the future, it's going to, again, require all of us to participate in more of these roles in greater ways. And so uh, from our standpoint, that means continuing to entrust more and more people with more and more significant things. And, um, and from, you know, from, that's from a leadership perspective and from a perspective of the church is saying, hey, yes to those things. Like, I want to step into more and more. Um, and so we all have a role to be the priesthood of all believers, that we are a holy priesthood. And like any role, it comes with responsibility. So what's the responsibility? And here we see that the responsibility is, as we read on, the offer, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. That is our responsibility. Now, again, back to the Old Testament, that was the priestly responsibility was to offer one of the responsibilities was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for sin and express gratitude to God for his, his mercy and goodness. And so they would go in and do that sort of thing. Now, before anybody gets crazy and starts bringing some lambs up in here, or goats or anything like that, that's not what we're saying. Here he's talking about, because why? Because a blood sacrifice is no longer required. Jesus became the sacrifice once and for all as he laid his life down for each and every one of us on the cross. Exactly. So Jesus became the sacrifice once and for all for all of us. And so what, Pe- what Peter is talking about here, though, is the spiritual sacrifices, that we have this responsibility to, uh, for spiritual sacrifices. So what is that? Well, um, here's some examples. One of it is our prayers. The priests would go into the temple and they would burn incense and, and offer intercession for the people. And so now we all, because again, God made his dwelling among us, we all have the ability to pray and to intercede uh, for one another. Our praises, both when things are going well and when things aren't going well, when we're in a, times of abundance and suffering, we, we offer a spiritual sacrifice to God by praising him in all times. We give our will to God. We... we as Jesus teaches us to, to pray, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. We give our bodies, we give our, our time, we give our talents, we give our resources. We offer our families as a spiritual sacrifice before the Lord. And, and in essence, your life is your offering. The life that you now li- li- live, you live for God. We were made not just to sing his praises on Sunday mornings, but to bring him praises all throughout the week in the way that we live our life. Richard and Henry Blackaby, they capture this well. They talk about uh, living a God-centered life, you must focus on God's purposes, not your own plans. Try to see things from God's perspective rather than your distorted human view. And when God starts to do something in the world, he takes the initiative to tell someone what he is doing. Out of his grace, God involves his people in accomplishing his purposes. That God wants to include you. I think this is a really incredible invitation. Like He doesn't need to use us. But he grants us responsibility and purpose. He allows us to participate with him. 
This is like when you, you know, invite your kid to, like, help you with a project, you know, that it could be much easier to not do that, you know, but you invite them in. Why? Because it's, it's, you want to give them responsibility. You want to entrust them with something significant, and God does that with us as well. And Blackaby, he elsewhere says, rather than trying to find your purpose, simply find what God is already doing around you and join him in that work. That's how we have the ability to step into what God is doing. We got to, um, over the Christmas time, be a part of something really special uh, with a small group of people over at Jonathan and Julia's house. And uh, it was just a really special time to really celebrate the Christmas really as it is and really just at the core of the Christmas story to unpack it. And Jonathan just has this really great ability to unpack and, and the story and be just a compelling storyteller in the way that he, he just breathes life into this story that's just such a the most incredible story that any of us know, and that's the story of God's redemptive plan being unfolding in our time. And um, so as he kind of tells his story, um, and by the way, I have to admit I was late, so I missed a lot of it, but I'm like looking forward to the next opportunity I have. Um, but he, he tells this entire story um, in just a way that um, it, it really just brings to life the culmination of Jesus coming into our time and space and reality um, and giving his life, and, and how everything leads up to this point, and then how everything really, the trajectory from this point on. And one of the things that um, when we had gotten there, he was kind of emphasizing to us that, hey, the key idea here is that this is your story, that this is your history, and you need to understand that you have a part in it. And so after they had kind of done that time of storytelling, we had the opportunity to get kind of with our family unit and spend some time just identifying the things that we see in them and how we see them playing their part in God's redemptive story. And I just thought that was just so just right in line with, with what the celebration of Christmas really should be. And so we had the opportunity to sit down and just speak these things into our kids. It's like, hey, I, I see this gifting in you. I see this um, quality in you that, that God's going to use in great ways. And it honestly was just a really humbling thing to get to be a part of. And I think that in some way, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 does the same thing. When Peter tells us, he says, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's like Peter's just leaning over and really whispering in each and every one of our ears, this is your story. This is your history. You have a part in it. And you are, you are a chosen people. You are God's special possession. You are a holy nation. This is your story. This is your history. And the only question that remains is, will you play your part in it? Will you claim your right to be his child, to share in his inheritance? By the way, that's a right that's freely given to him freely given to us through him. And so if you've never claimed that right, if you've never said yes to God's invitation to be part of his family, to be one of his children, it is something that he freely gives if you want to put your trust and faith in him. And so for some of you, I think that's the first step into this, is to say, I want to be a part of his church. I want to be a part of his household. I want to be a part of his family. And for others, I think it's asking that question, okay, what's what does it look like for me to live in the reality of the gospel each and every day of my life? What does it look for me uh, to just live in this relationship that God has offered for me? And what does it look like 
for me to step into the role that he's called me to play? And what does it look like for me to take responsibility for my life, the life that he's entrusted me with? So I just want you to invite you to continue just to process through those questions this week. And um, I just want to ask God to continue to equip us and empower us to be the church that he is building. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you so much just for your mercy. Without your mercy and without the reality of the gospel, God, none of us could um, experience what you um, have really invited us into. And so thank you, God, for just the reality that that's built on your back, that's not built on our back, and you are faithful. And because of that, God, we are invited into a story that is bigger than us. We are invited into a family that is a spiritual family that we actually get to allow you to dwell in us and work through us. And God, we... We're just grateful for that. We're grateful for the roles that you've entrusted us with and the responsibilities that come with it, God. We ask that you would, by your power and by your presence, God, empower us to live the kind of lives that we were meant for and to be the church, God, that you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name.